I love that song. <laughs> love the movie too. So, hello, I'm Pastor Vance. Uh, I'm about the only pastor of our church that is in town right now. Um, our elders and pastors had planned uh, some time ago to do a retreat over in Cambria, so you know they're really suffering over there. And so it's like, who are we going to have preach? Oh, Vance will do it. Yeah, okay, because I love to preach. Little did we know that we would have like a wave of sickness go through our staff. So uh, we can be thankful that Rachel and Nate are both doing a lot better. Otherwise, it would be me up here humming, which is not good. <laughs> so, and I'm just truly thankful for just the depth of our ministry teams because that was very, very apparent. Because um, we still are going to do church. We still have everything covered. And I just praise God for that. So we are doing and taking a look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. So I invite you to go there. Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. <clears throat> and I'm entitling this as we're dealing with work relationships. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. All right? Let me first of all, though, before we get into the scriptures, introduce somebody to us that is a great example of somebody who learned to love the Lord through his work. His name was Nicholas Herman, but he's better known as Brother Lawrence. Lawrence was born a poor French peasant, and he first became a soldier so that he could get some food, he was literally starving, and a small stipend, a small salary. Well, he was fighting during a terrible time in Europe in the 1700s called the Thirty Years' War. And he saw some terrible battles and he was badly wounded. So much so that he could no longer be a soldier. So after trying a number of other jobs, he eventually became a monk. And that's why you see him. We don't really know what he looks like. This is an artist's rendering of him. He became a monk and he thought for the remainder of his life, he was then 26 years old, that he would live a nice, quiet life serving the Lord. But the Lord had other plans. You see, for the next 50 years, Lawrence lived to be almost 80 years old. He learned how to offer up all of his work, whether he was serving in the monastery kitchen scrubbing pots and pans, or until his health got poor because of his injured leg, they ended up using him as a sandal maker because that's what he could do. But regardless, he offered up all of his work as a love offering to Jesus, literally practicing God's presence all the time. Eventually, after he passed away, a small book was written called Practicing the Presence of God, which is still in print. You could read it in less than an afternoon. And one of the things they quoted Lawrence as saying was this, is it not quicker and easier just to do our common business wholly for the love of him? We can do little things for God. Now this is the last new topic in our series, Outdated. As we focus upon what I'm gonna call the world of work. And if there's only one thing that you remember from our message this morning, it's this. Here's the main idea. Our work matters to Jesus. Whether you happen to be a kid and 
Cleaning your room, like your parents say, that's your work. Your work matters to Jesus. Whether you're a student in high school or middle school, taking classes, giving homework, doing your work in class, your work matters to Jesus. Whether you're a teacher, how you treat your kids in your classroom, how you interact with the other people at your school, your work matters to Jesus. If you are a business person, how you treat your business employees, that matters to Jesus. Oh, and by the way, if you are retired, how you use your time in service to Jesus matters to Jesus. In short, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, to paraphrase him, everything we do is an offering to Jesus. All right, now before we get into our passage, let me share with you some background information that's gonna help us to understand what Paul is gonna tell us here in Ephesians 6. First of all, I had mentioned this before the last time I think I was up here, and that is we are building again upon what Paul told us at the very beginning in Ephesians chapter five, verses 15 to 20. He said two things there that affect all of our relationships. First of all, he said, look carefully how you walk. That's true about all of our relationships with people, whether we're children, whether we're parents, whether we're married, whether we're not married. Be careful, be wise how you walk. And then secondly, in verse 18 of chapter five, he said, be filled with the Spirit. And the idea again was an ongoing filling because we cannot live relationships to the Lord properly without the ongoing presence and filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, number two, God created work. And by the way, it was totally good until the fall messed it up. Now, how do we know God created work? Because when we go clear back to Genesis chapter two, verse 15, Adam is there placed in the garden and shortly he will be joined by Eve and we're told in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So Adam was a gardener of this beautiful, beautiful creation that God placed him in. We can't even imagine how glorious that garden was. But then sadly, Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve both sinned against God and then Adam is told Genesis chapter three, verse 17 and 18. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So the next time you're working in your garden, you're pulling out the weeds, thank Adam. All right? Because that was not God's intention. Number three. Since this passage talks about slavery, we better have an understanding about slavery. Slavery in New Testament times was different from later practices in the US and elsewhere. Now all of us know our country's past in slavery, sadly, it still stains our country in some ways even to this day. It was a terrible evil, and by the way, it's estimated there is close to 50 million people in slavery right now. 
Some of them work in sweatshops in places like South Asia, India, Bangladesh, places like that. Some of them, sadly, are trapped in sex trafficking. So slavery still exists in our world. Well, some ways New Testament slavery was different from what we think about when we hear the word slave. First of all, it was not based upon racism or color, unlike slavery in our country. You could literally be any racial background and be a slave in the ancient world. Secondly, about one third of the people in the Roman world were slaves. So in a city like Rome, the biggest city in the world in Paul's day, over a million people lived there. Undoubtedly, three to 400,000 of them were slaves, including many Christians. So when we read something in the Bible, for example, when Paul writes in Romans 16 and he says in Romans 16, 11, oh, the people in the household of Narcissus greet you, the people in the household guys are slaves. When Paul talks about how he has heard something about the Corinthian church from Chloe's people in 1 Corinthians, 5, 1 Corinthians chapter one, Chloe's people are slaves. And there's an entire small book in the New Testament written on behalf of a slave named Onesimus, written by Paul to his owner, Philemon. So slavery was very common. And basically, the ancient world economy would have collapsed if it hadn't been for slavery. Number four, slavery was never okay. I point this out because sadly, in our country's past, back in the early 1900s, there were even Christians who wrote books and other things justifying slavery. It's never okay. And the teaching of scripture will transform every relationship. So even though the New Testament never comes out and explicitly says, stop practicing slavery, and lays the groundwork for the end of slavery. For example, Colossians chapter three, verse 11, Paul's talking about our spiritual position in Christ, and he says, here, before Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, what's a Scythian? Basically a uber barbarian, super barbarian, scary guy. Slave, free, Christ is all, and in all. At the foot of the cross, we're all equal. And guys, when in church history, people took verses like Colossians 3.11 seriously, people like, for example, William Wilberforce, who led the effort to abolish slavery throughout the entire British Empire. They didn't have to fight a civil war to end slavery. They had William Wilberforce to do it. It took him over 30 years of his life, but that was his life goal. People in our country like Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, William Lloyd Garrison, all these people that out of their Christian convictions came to the conclusion that slavery stinks. Paul, although he's talking to slaves and masters, both of whom are Christians in this passage, what we gotta realize is he's addressing them and how they are to deal with one another 
with the fact that all of them now stand before Jesus. So let's go now to Ephesians chapter six, verses five through nine. First of all, in verses five through eight, to give you a quick overview of the outline, where we're gonna go, in verses five through eight, there are four commands for what Paul calls bond servants. It's the Greek word doulos, sometimes it's translated slave, but I think bond servant is actually a more accurate translation. Four commands. And then, verse nine, he's gonna give there three commands for the slave masters, or as we'll think of them, for the employers. Okay? So let's take a look, first of all, and read through verses five through eight, again, Ephesians chapter six. So here we go. Bond servants, obey. In my Bible, I actually underline that word because it's the key word that governs everything in the next several verses. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing, another key word, that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant, a slave, or free. Okay, four commands in these few verses. First command for us as employees, practice obedience as you would for Jesus. Now, verse five is where we see this. And there's two things Paul says about practicing obedience. The first thing he says, practice it in fear and trembling. Uh, that sounds weird. We don't really use fear and trembling to describe how we're supposed to uh, do whatever our employer says. A better translation is what you see in the New Living Translation. It says, obey with deep respect and fear. That more communicates what Paul is trying to get across in terms of our language. Paul liked this phrase, though, fear and trembling. He's the only writer in the New Testament that uses those words in that way. He used those words when he described how when he went to the city of Corinth to preach the gospel, he did not go there arrogantly. He literally went there, as he said, in fear and trembling, trusting Jesus alone. Not trusting eloquence, not trusting human wisdom, but trusting Jesus alone. And he said, I went to you to share the gospel in fear and trembling, meaning that I wasn't trusting myself. And then when he wrote to the Philippian Christians, his letter, and at one point he tells them, work out your salvation. Not meaning we can earn our salvation, we can't do that. But rather, take the spiritual resources we have in Christ and as a community, because Paul means there, you all, all of you together, Help each other to grow in your Christian walk. And then he says, as you're doing this, do it with fear and trembling. So coming to work. 
anybody happen to like a cocky, swaggering employee? I've worked with characters like that, all of us have. That's the opposite of what Paul is saying. He's talking about as we do whatever our job happens to be, wherever it happens to be, we do it as reverence to the Lord. And then he says, we're gonna work with a sincere heart. Another way to translate that is singleness of purpose. Focus. Now, David was an example of this. King David. At the end of his life, King David had accumulated vast wealth, and his intention originally was to use that vast wealth to build the temple. But as we all know, the Lord told him, nope, you're not going to build the temple. You have been a man of war. You've shed too much blood. Your son Solomon will build the temple. But then David had all of these resources literally in today's money, into the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. So what David did, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, he donated it. He gave it all. He emptied out his treasury. And his example inspired the people of Israel to likewise donate and to give so that Solomon would have all of these resources to build the temple. And then David prayed. This is what he prayed, 1 Chronicles 29, 17. I know, my God, that, the, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. That's singleness of purpose. That's sincerity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent, and now I see with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. That's sincerity. That's singleness of purpose. And the question we should ask ourselves is simply this. When it comes to our work, what's our attitude when we work and serve. Years ago, when I was working on my teacher's credential, before I eventually went into the classroom, I had a professor that gave me the best piece of advice I ever had in his classes, and he was a good teacher. He said this, and I'm gonna pass it on to you guys. Beware of the energy vampires. What? What he meant was if you're a teacher and you go into the teacher's lounge, sometimes there are energy vampires in there. My class stinks. The principal's terrible. And you know what they do? They suck you dry. That's what they do. Because their attitude can end up coloring our attitude as well. And I remember at times in my teaching career, I purposely would not go into the teacher's lounge if I saw them in there. Because it would affect my attitude. I could not very well serve the Lord unless my attitude was good. So what is our attitude when we work and serve? Second command, Paul says, and it's at the end, beginning of verse six, 
He says we have to go beyond the outward motions. It's not enough to just simply go through the motions when it comes to our work. And then Paul actually creates his own word to describe this. He says, don't practice eye service. Paul made that word up. Doesn't appear before Paul in Greek literature. He created it. Eye service is, of course, only doing a decent job when the boss is watching. Is Boston watching? No. Okay. That's eye service. And eye service, he also describes as somebody who is out to please people, first and foremost. See, Paul is telling us, and this is something else we need to remember, integrity and character are revealed by our unseen actions. How good of a person we are in terms of whatever the job, whatever the work the Lord has laid upon us, how good we really are is revealed when nobody is watching us. And you know, guys, this has a lot of repercussions. I know I'm strange, but one of the movies I like to watch, or TV shows I like to watch is called Disasters at Sea. I'm sorry. One of the things I've learned in Disasters at Sea is how you load a ship has all kinds of implications, just as however you load a shipping truck has implications. They have to be very careful of where they place the cargo, even in these vast container ships that literally are over three or four football fields long and have hundreds and hundreds of these containers on them. If they don't put them exactly where they're supposed to be, you can end up unstabilizing the ship and it can literally capsize. And it all has to do with loading everything carefully, practicing your work with integrity, because if you don't, lives are at stake in the case of shipping goods. Paul says, remember, we are bondservants of Jesus. Guys, a bondservant is basically a temporary slave. In the Old Testament, if a Hebrew sold themselves into slavery for whatever reason, they would serve six years. In the Roman Empire, typically most slaves, unless it had been a criminal uh, act that had led them into slavery, but in most cases, a slave only served until they were about 30 years old. And then they were freed. We are all, however, permanent slaves of Jesus. Why? Because he purchased us. He redeemed us. He paid for our salvation with his very blood. We have been redeemed. Redemption is the word that describes all of that. And we have been redeemed specifically not to offer eye service because Jesus sees far beyond our actions. Jesus looks into our very hearts. But we have been saved by grace through faith according to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 so that, according to verse 10 of Ephesians 2, we may do works of service unto the Lord. We get our English word poem from that word translated workmanship used there. Third command, letter C, 
This is the other half of verse six. We are doing God's will from our heart, from our soul. Literally what Paul writes there is he says, but not as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. ESV translates it heart. It's actually suke. It's soul. Soul is like the very most inner part of us, according to biblical psychology. So it's like from our very deepest core, we dedicate ourselves to serve the Lord who bought us, who paid for us, who loved us. We don't hold anything back. That's why when the lawyer asked Jesus, hey, what's the greatest command in the Bible? And Jesus said in Matthew 22, verses 36 to 38, here's the one that says in the quote, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he, that's Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. In other words, we don't hold anything back. Because ultimately, whatever we do, we're doing because we're serving the one who bought us. And the fourth command, remember, faithful service will be rewarded. Look at the next verse. Knowing, key word, that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord whatever he was received back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he is free. Knowing in the Greek language there is the idea we know something and then we act upon that knowledge. That knowledge colors everything that we do. You see, according to scripture, knowledge is not real knowledge unless it affects our actions. The problem with the Pharisees was that they knew a lot of facts up here, but it didn't translate truly through their hearts into their actions. They were judgmental, they were harsh, they were cruel. They put burdens upon the people because all the facts were up here, but it never changed how they lived. So knowing, and then the opening word at verse five, obeying, guys, they're the two sides of the same coin for us. They go together. And then Paul says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord. Paul there is using a different word than he normally uses to talk about receiving back. The word is komitso he's using here, and it means this. We receive something back when we stand before Jesus. He's not talking about receiving back necessarily something good in this life because we all know that sometimes whatever our job is, sometimes we do good stuff and we don't get the reward. Paul's looking beyond that. He's talking about the reward that we will get when we stand before the Lord himself. Sorry, reverted into teacher voice there. Here it is, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear 
before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive, there it is again, komitso, receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Yeah, it's nice to be recognized for our hard work, whether we're a homemaker, whether we're still employed at a job, whether we're retired, whether we're a kid, it's nice to be recognized. But even if we don't get the recognition we want, there's still somebody whose recognition is far more important. Think about the parable of the talents that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 25. Remember the story, one guy got so much, and this other guy got, one guy got five talents, one guy got two talents, another guy got one talent. A talent represented 20 years wages. And the guy that got the five talents doubled them. And the guy that got the two talents doubled them. And of course, the one that got the one talent, he was the idiot. He just buried what the master gave him. And he paid a heavy price for that. But the ones who doubled, when the master showed up, and the master in the parable is Jesus, they both received the exact same accommodation. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a little. You will be entrusted with much. So remember, faithful service will be rewarded. Okay, let's move on. Let's take a look at verse 9, because verse 9 has three commands for the masters or for the employers. Masters, do the same thing for them. And stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. First command, treat people with consideration. Now where's that? It's in the opening statement. Masters, do the same thing for them. What in the world is the same thing? The same thing refers back to some of the things that Paul had already written in the earlier verses, that he had written to the slaves, that he had written for employees. The point is, is just because you happen to be on the other side of the desk, that you're the one who signs the paychecks doesn't mean you don't treat people with consideration. What does it mean to do the same? It means what Paul wrote to the Colossians. Colossians 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. You know a quick test to know whether or not we're actually doing this? Do we apologize when we mess up? Are we humble enough to say to a worker we have hurt that we have treated unjustly, I'm sorry, I messed up. I had to learn that as a teacher because believe it or not, occasionally I would mess up in the classroom. And I knew I had to apologize. And you know what I discovered? when I would do that and I would talk to my students and admit that I messed up, they actually respected me more 
that had done that. So do the same to them. Treat people with consideration. Next thing he says, stop using threats. You got to remember, if somebody's a slave and the other guy's a master, there's a serious power imbalance there, isn't there? Okay? Because basically, under Roman law, a slave master could go so far as actually killing their slave and they could get away with it. There would be no legal consequences to it. So Paul is saying, look guys, how you used to treat the people that work for you needs to change. So typical threats that they would make, slave owners would make to their slaves, they would beat them, threaten them with additional beatings. Sexual harassment or abuse. There was no Me Too movement in the ancient world. Okay? Selling off family members. Because legally, even if you had a wife and you had children as a slave, you had no legal standing. The slave owner could literally split up that family. So he could threaten them with doing that. Paul's saying, don't you do that anymore. Stop that. How should people be treated, Christian brothers and sisters? Well, here's what Paul wrote a little earlier in Ephesians. He says this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are all members of one another. By the way, Paul does not mean that sometimes folks have to be corrected. Obviously, that has to happen. There needs to be the freedom to be able to do that. But nevertheless, one thing we need to remember, both our words and our actions impact our testimony. How we act as a worker and how we act as a boss obviously affects the people around us who are directly working for us, but also word gets out. Word gets out how we treat people, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's indifferent. And according to Jesus, we are all called to be salt and light, aren't we? So we need to think about those things. And the third command, remember we all serve the same impartial master. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we're all going to stand before Jesus. Now it's interesting, here Paul says, don't show partiality. He says, there is no partiality with the Lord. Literally to be partial means to show the face. All right? When I would illustrate this with my students in Uganda at the seminary that I taught there, show the face is the same phrase that James used when he says, let there be no favoritism. Don't favor the rich over the poor. Showing the face means, oh, you're rich. You get the good seat. Dust it off, clean it up and all that. The poor person comes into the church. Here, you sit on the floor. That's showing the face. That's playing favorites. And God hates it. Here's what the Lord says, what it's just how the Lord is described in Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, 
and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. And then Paul says it simply, Romans 2.11, for there is no favoritism with God. Before Jesus, regardless of distinctions in this life, Regardless of what we do in this life, regardless of our family situation, regardless of our gifts, our talents, before Jesus, we stand as spiritual equals. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. Our mutual identity in Christ is to transform every relationship we have. That's why we have spent so much time in this part of the book of Ephesians. Let me give you an example of one relationship that was transformed in scripture. I mentioned earlier Onesimus. Onesimus, his name means useful. Onesimus was a slave of a Christian master named Philemon, but Onesimus wasn't useful. Onesimus was useless. He was worse than useless. He was a thief. And he stole from his master Philemon and then he ran. Because one of the penalties for theft, if you were a slave, was death. And he ran from the little city, the little town of Colossae. He ran all the way to Rome. If you're a runaway slave, what's a good place to hide out? Rome. Because there's three, four hundred thousand slaves in Rome. And then somehow, Onesimus, the runaway slave, the thief, met up with Paul. And Paul was under house arrest. He couldn't go anywhere. He was literally chained to a Roman soldier day and night. But somehow, Onesimus hooked up with him. And Paul led Onesimus to Christ. And then Onesimus, the former, well, he's still a runaway slave, he began to serve Paul. He began to help Paul. But Paul knew stuff in the back needs to be taken care of. Onesimus needs to return to Philemon. So Paul wrote this little letter called Philemon. And Onesimus, probably with fear and trembling, took that letter back, went back to Colossae, went back to his master's house, to Paul's friend Philemon and handed him the letter. This is part what Paul wrote. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer a bondservant or slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Now, a lot of Bible teachers, and I'm one of them, think that indirectly Paul was asking Philemon to free Onesimus so that this man, now a Christian, could return back to Paul and help Paul in his ministry. And one last detail, this is not in scripture, but we know of an early bishop, the leader of the church in Rome, later after Paul's death, who happened to be named Onesimus. 
Maybe the same guy. Now again, if you don't remember anything else from what we have studied today, please remember this. Our work matters to God. Whatever you do, whatever time, whatever resources the Lord entrusts to you, it matters to him. And we will have to give an account of that to the Lord himself. So two final questions as we wrap up this message. First question, who are we truly serving? It's easy to lose sight of that, but ultimately we know the answer to that. We're truly serving Jesus. And his approval is what matters most. And the second question is related to that. How are we serving him? Are we doing it in a way that brings honor and glory to the Lord? That's what we need to ask. All right? Somebody's supposed to come up here. (laughs) Here she comes. It's okay, Rachel, I'm gonna go ahead and close in prayer and then we'll do our closing song. I'm gonna also, as we normally do, we'll have a time up here, and we got plenty of time. Don't even look at the clock, folks, okay? I quit on time. Uh, We're gonna have time up here. If you wanna come forward for prayer, we're gonna have our prayer team up at the front. Love to pray with you, help you in any way that we can. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, so much for the time that we have to be able to praise you, to be able to study and to learn. Help us, Lord, with work as well as everything else to live lives that please you. We just thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had. Keep us sensitive to your spirit. We pray and ask in Christ's name, amen.